All right, take your Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 10 today, Luke chapter 10. What does Jesus desire for his disciples? What does he want us to be about? What does our heavenly Father find great joy in? What brings a smile to our master's face? How do we make Jesus smile? Folks, there is nothing in the world that makes a father smile at their child like obedience. (laughs) There is nothing in this world that makes, that compares to that. Again, um, as we who have children know, raising children can be such a task. And our children love to say, I love you, Daddy. But one of our big things now is saying I love you is not like obedience. Saying it and doing it is a whole different thing. When we do what our Heavenly Father wants us to do, we bring joy to our Father. When our children obey us, it brings joy to our face, right? Parents, everybody, all parents say, Amen. In our passage today, we're going to see what brings joy to our Master's face. It's what makes Jesus smile it would probably be arguably be the main obedient act he wants us to do and that is to proclaim him with joy trusting him with the results proclaiming him with joy and leaving the results to him today we're going to begin to see the king's heart for the mission to proclaim him It is all about proclaiming Christ to the world. We've begun to see in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus' attention is now on Jerusalem. His cross, that he would die for us, his resurrection and his coming glorification. That was found back in Luke chapter 9 verse 51. The transition of Luke's book. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So his eyes were fixed on Jerusalem. This is not necessarily geography or time. In other words, he's not going to be there quickly. It's eight, roughly eight months from now. Rather, he is focused on his imminent death and his glorification. So the rest of the book His eyes are on the cross. His eyes are on his glorification. His eyes are on his ascension and return to the Father. Jesus has begun to distinguish between those who are for him and those who are against him. Luke chapter 9 is arguably one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to read if you're on the fence. If you're on the fence of whether you're really a believer in Christ or not, Luke chapter 9 is the line in the sand. If you're a real believer, you're here. If you're not really a believer, you're over here. He has just recently, in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, challenged some potential followers of Jesus. He's challenged them with their shallow motives. If we remember back in Luke chapter 9, verses 57, and he says, Put me above family in a sense. Put me above riches in a sense. Put me above everything. I am the one to follow. Put me in the proclamation of me above everything. Now, fresh off of this rebuke to those three half-hearted disciples, Jesus moves to send out 70 men. That's what chapter 10 is about, and it starts with. It's interesting that we have these half-hearted disciples, and then there are 70 legit disciples in chapter 10 that are sent out in pairs. 
as we will see. And they are committed to proclaim him in the cities that he's going to visit, as we'll see. Today we're going to look at Jesus' second main commissioning. He commissions these disciples to go out. This could be called the final great mission for Jesus' disciples before his crucifixion. Today we get a glimpse into this final mission of Jesus' disciples before his glorification. While this mission is not perfectly applicable to our mission today, in other words, it is description, not prescription. It's not, okay, this is exactly what we're going to do in every single case because obviously they're given the gift of healing people. We don't have that gift. But at the same token, there is some great application and implied application for all of us in light of Jesus' call in Matthew chapter 28. It's called the Great Commission. So we have this commission, and it has some similarities to Matthew 28. So we're going to see some the heart of Jesus and what he wants us to accomplish. What does he want us to accomplish in this world can be compared closely with what he wanted the disciples to accomplish. Today, we're going to look at the Lord's heart for the disciple on mission for him. We're going to see what Jesus desires for us as we face the world with the goal of making disciples for him. So let's look at Jesus' final mission, verses 1 and 2. Let's read those first two to get the setting for the mission. The setting for the mission. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We see here the setting for this final mission before his glorification. Notice the people for the mission. That's found in verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. These are other than the 12 apostles. These were men that most likely had shown a commitment to follow Christ. And he sends them out with authority. Notice he sends them out in pairs. And it's going to be a common theme as we go along here. This idea of needing God or vulnerability. And all the way through we see some vulnerabilities of the disciples. You say, where is that vulnerability being sent out in pairs? Well, he doesn't send out 70 individuals. (laughs) He sends them out together. Why does he send them out together? Well, because he knows them, just like he knows us. Why does he pair them up? Well, because humans are weak. <laughs> he couldn't he cover a lot more territory if he sent 78 men out to 70 different cities. Yeah, but why does the Lord himself send them out in pairs? Because we need each other. We're needy people. I'll never forget when I start, when we, by God's grace, we started the church. Uh, Mark, huge. If I wouldn't have had somebody to pair up with me, team up with me, I wouldn't have done it. I'm a weak, wimpy person. (laughs) Apart from God's grace and him using Mark to come alongside to help me point me in the right direction sometimes, when I began to worry, he pointed scripture to me. We need each other, and that's what God does here. The Lord sends them out together in pairs Because he knows they're needy people. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't stay single and team up with other people and do missions work. But I would suggest it's not the thing to go out and strike out all by yourself without people together. This is some good philosophy of mission, maybe. That people, we're not going to think that one person can conquer the world by themselves. Beautiful stuff here. Jesus knew that men had needs and they needed to work together. 
Second, we noticed the people were not only paired up, the 70, but there was a place that they were going for mission. They were going ahead of Jesus to every city and place where he himself was going or was going to come. He sends them to the cities he was going to travel through on the coming months going to his death, burial, and resurrection. This was a common practice in Jesus' day. Kings would send their representatives out to the cities they were going to travel through to prepare the people for the king's arrival. And Jesus sets it out perfect. Send some emissaries, send some representatives to prepare the people to get ready for the king's arrival. Finally, in the setting, we see the circumstances for the mission. The circumstances for the mission. This is a beautiful little section here in verse 2. You could actually probably preach a sermon just from verse 2. It's a beautiful little picture of what the mission field looks like, especially in this case. Here we see Jesus uses picture language again to explain how great the mission is or what the field looks like for the 70. He uses the metaphor of a harvest and laborers. This language would be very clear to the disciples. They wouldn't be confused. They'd know perfectly clear what he meant by harvest. Notice it doesn't have an explanation. They understood he was comparing where they were going to a harvest field. They knew what it looked like for a field to be ready. They understood what the grain fields looked like. They understood what a field looked like when it was ready. This is what Jesus is saying. All the places I'm going, they're ready. Wow. I don't know about you, but think about this for a second. This has got to be some good news for the disciples. Right? This is good news. Why would this be good news? Well, if you are anything like me, I love making disciples. I take great passion and great joy in making disciples. And if somebody tells me, hey, go over there, there's a lot of people that want to become disciples, well, guess what I want to do? I want to go over there. So this would have been like what? Putting a beautiful steak cooked beautiful right out in front of the disciples and say, go ahead, gorge yourself. Fields are ready. Go for it. This is good news. He says the fields are ready. He gave three details here. The great magnitude of the mission, the limited workers for the mission, and then the need of the sovereign for the mission. Look at it. The great magnitude of the mission. He says the harvest is plentiful. Despite the rejection that Jesus had begun, begun to get, there was still a large remnant of people, Jewish people, who would be open to hearing the news of the Messiah. For a disciple maker, this was good news. While fruit, true believers, is not what we should only long for, it is why we preach. It's one of the reasons. Why do I do this? Why do we proclaim the gospel? Why do we tell the word? We want people to what? Believe and follow Christ. That's what we want. And that was for them a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of a field ready. We know his word doesn't return void either, right? And he's glorified by converting sinners. So he gets joy out of that. God does, and he sends us and sends them out to proclaim the word so that others can follow him. By the way, the harvest is huge today also. I know I can tell you, I, I can't tell you exactly how many people are out there that are going to believe. I, I don't know that. He knew that the field was ready. I don't know exactly how many more people, but I will tell you this. If population numbers have anything to do with it, the fields are right now, too. I, I, I came across an interesting picture I'll show you in a second. It's just staggering. 
the population levels during Jesus' days compared to the population levels during our day. And the population of the area where he was sending them out, he says a harvest field ready compared to the population now is unbelievable. I would argue that this, this passage applies perfectly for us today. Perfectly. There are tons of people out there that are ready. They need the gospel. And here we need to be those disciple makers too. Notice also the limited workers though. He says, but the laborers are few. As big as the mission was there, there was still a great need for more laborers. There was need of many more who would proclaim the glory of the king. There was need of more disciples to make other disciples. Again, the need today is just as great or greater. We need more disciple makers. We need more laborers. We need more people to stop just being about ourselves and our own little compact people and get out and proclaim the gospel. The laborers are few then and the laborers are few today. Now, as much as I beg you, and I know that how many of you have heard sermons where people just begged you and begged you, please go, please go. That's not going to bring about ultimately you going. It's not going to make you do it. I can beg, I can cry, I can plead, but I want you to notice who's the one that's going to work in your heart to cause you to go. Look next. Notice the need of the sovereign. The need of the sovereign for the mission. Notice he says, Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. What? Now that almost goes contrary to the way us that have grown up in the, uh, in the evangelical church of today would see it. It would be worded this way in the evangelical church today. It would be worded this way. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pull out a better sermon and call people and try to guilt them into going to the mission field. Come on. Feel guilty. Go. Get busy. Stop being lazy. Go. But he doesn't say that. Look what he says. It's interesting. He says, therefore, cry out to God, the Lord of the harvest, to throw out more laborers into the field. Why? Well, because we, we preachers can fall into that trap. These guys needed to know it, too. It's my job to talk you into becoming a great disciple maker. I can't. I can cry. I can plead. I can tell you some wonderful stories. But ultimately, all I can do is proclaim the word with the way he says it and beseech the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, to work in your hearts to cause you to go out and make disciples. That's what he says. He says it's all under the Lord of the harvest's hand. It's an interesting little phrase. The Lord of the harvest, the sovereign controller of the wheat field. Who is the sovereign controller of the wheat field and how it's brought to harvest? God is. He's the one that does it. He's the one that throws out workers. Now, does that mean that we have no responsibility to go? No. You don't throw out our responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. But we must make it not about us talking people into the mission field. Rather... We must beseech the Father to send out people to make disciples. And that's what he says here. And at the same time, calling people to make disciples based on what his word says. But not with intimidation. He says, you are the Lord of the... He says, beseech or call out to the Lord of the harvest. That he may send out more laborers. We saw last week when we were in Ephesians chapter 1 that God saves and chose before the foundation of the world who would be saved. How do we reconcile this with this, that people are going out and they're proclaiming the word? The answer is both are there. 
God is sovereign, but God, we are also responsible for proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Both are true. God uses and ordains us to proclaim the word, and then people become believers. It's both. It's not one or the other. He is Lord of, over the harvest. He has ordained, and he uses weak people like us. Learning this might tempt some of us to think, well, if he's Lord of the harvest, I just need to sit back and do nothing. I need to sit back and only proclaim the gospel to those people that come up to me and ask me. <laughs> they come up to me and ask me, then I'll give them the gospel. Otherwise, just sit back. No, 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 no. If God is sovereign and he can change hearts, then we should be proclaiming the gospel to every single person with the idea that he could change that person's heart. It's not an impossible task. It's a glorious task. So God, please send out more people. Throw us out there to proclaim the gospel so more people will become believers in you. As we see here, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, okay, we know the Lord of the harvest, so sit back and watch what I do. <laughs> That's not what he says. He sends them out. Both are true. God is sovereign and man is responsible. So we see the call for prayer here. For God to make more disciple makers. To literally throw them out into the field to do the work. There's so much great application here for us today. Just like in Jesus' circumstance, it's similar to our circumstance. There's a great need, folks. And there is a lack of commitment of disciple makers. That's a fact. There are very few that are willing to go. There are thousands and thousands and millions and billions of people that don't know Christ. And yet very, very, very few missionaries in light of the context so what should we do? We should go to our knees, seeking the Lord more. Seeking the Lord to make more disciple makers. And convicting us and calling us if that's what he wants us to do. By grace, we have two young ladies that are going to Honduras. There's a picture of Honduras this week, leaving Wednesday. If you've been reading the emails lately, uh, this is Guadapecte. Right here in the middle is where Mark and uh, the Pattersons live, where uh, Nada is, where they train pastors to go out, national pastors to go out and proclaim the gospel. Mark's been going into a little village over in this area and that ha has um, just one little uh, remnant of believers, and it, it's just exploding because a village about, you know, just across the way has just recently asked him to come, so he went there too, and they don't even have a church. And so he went there and gave the gospel. There was a little bit of flack on whether they would even let them be there and proclaim, proclaim the gospel to the children, and, and God opened the door, and they even gave him a letter just recently. Okay, you can tell everybody about this in the schools. They can tell everybody about Christ. It's a beautiful little picture, though. This is a place where there's about 300 people, and they have no gospel at all. And then those people say that there's more villages all around there that had never heard the gospel. It's a beautiful picture. I'm so thankful. Uh, let's pray. God has raised up two disciple makers. <laughs> Sarah, Joe, and Kena are going out this week. They're going to make disciples. Let's pray for them. As they go out. And let's pray that God makes more disciple makers out there. That's what it's all about, folks. And then you look at the whole world. You see this little line along the bottom here? This is population level. Less than 200, 250 million people roughly during the time of Jesus. This is back in 2000. It's over 6 billion people. 
Six billion people. Do you understand how many people out of that eight to nine now billion people? What is it? Eight billion people, roughly seven billion people. It's a number we can't even comprehend that don't even know Christ, have not even heard the gospel. Billions. Billions. We can't even comprehend that number. There is a great need, isn't there? What happens? I'm going to bring up a very difficult issue here just to drive it home just a little bit. What happens to the billions of people that never hear the gospel? Well, the big pitch today, Rob Bell, is that they don't go to hell. There's not a hell for those people that don't ever hear the gospel. The big pitch is, you know why? Because then we can sit in our comfortable little pews and not feel like we got to get up off our bottoms and go do something. We can sit there and be comfortable. If there's no hell, we can be comfortable. But the reality is, is that these people are going to hell. How important is it? We must beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out more disciple makers. If we're not doing anything, we should be praying for that at least. At the bare minimum, we should be praying for that. Every day, we should be begging God, please make more missionaries. I have to confess, I struggle. Because here we are in our little church here. And I'm like, oh, man, there's like three or four people that have mentioned to me before that they're interested in the mission field. And all those people, you know what I've thought? I've thought, I admit it, here it goes. Oh, it'd be hard to lose those people. It'd be hard, man. We're hundred church, hundred people here, maybe. Lose four or five of you to the mission field. It'd be hard. What am I doing when I think that way? You selfish man. You're not thinking of the harvest. You're thinking about one thing. Your church. You've forgotten it's his church, not your church. Listen, if God is working in your heart to go to the mission field, go! There's people that need the gospel. Go! Seven billion people that will all die within the next 40 years or so, 80 years? And where will they go? Hell, go. God, please work in our hearts to drive us to go. Notice the requirements of the mission. Don't do it for guilt. Do it because you love Christ and you want to proclaim him, by the way. The requirement for the remission Jesus gives six requirements to the 70 disciples to follow on their mission. First, he says, go with your eyes open, in a sense. He says, notice, look, go, but look, pay attention, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. In other words, go, but have your eyes wide open, you're weak, and there are wolves that are going to eat you. <laughs> Lambs um, in the midst of wolves. What's that? And I'll tell you what. Jesus, again, says some of the wildest things <laughs> in preparation for the mission. <laughs> totally contrary to the way that we think. Now, I'll tell you, Justin, Justin's back from boot camp. I bet you they make you think that you could run through brick walls I mean, they make you say, you can do it, you can do it, go, 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 you'll do whatever, go, go, go. They get you ready, right? Jesus says, you're going to fall, you're going to fall, you're going to fall, over and over and over. You don't have a chance, 
No chance at all. You're a lamb. There's wolves out there that are going to eat you. You have no shot at all. That's what he's saying. Go with your eyes wide open. Why is he doing this? Well, because it brings it, brings it home in the next point. He says, go with dependence upon the Lord alone. Matter of fact, what he does is he says, I'm not going to give you anything. I don't want you to have anything. He says, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. What? Were they going barefoot? No, most likely it was an extra pair of shoes. And his point was, in that day, when you traveled, you would take an extra pair of sandals because they wore out. His point is this. Go completely dependent upon the Lord. Don't trust in yourself. You can't do it. You're going to fail. You are hopeless without me, but go dependent totally upon me and upon the Lord of the harvest. Trust in him alone. As if Jesus wanted to make very clear that it was not them that was going to make their mission accomplished by themselves. It was going to be God and being dependent upon him was their only hope. Third notice, go with urgency and focus. He says, and greet no one on the way. Now, at first glance, this looks like, man, Jesus is saying, be rude to anybody on the side of the road. <laughs> but that's not what he's getting at. He's saying, stay focused on the main thing. I'm sending you to a spot. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get off on this little tangent. Somebody wants to talk to you. Because see, what's the enemy trying to do? Get you away from the mission. Stay on point. Stay focused. Proclaiming me in the city I tell you to go to. Stay on message. Which brings us to the next point. Go with a message of peace. He says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Literally, it would be shalom in Hebrew. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. What in the world is he talking about here? The message they had said or were to say was something along the lines of peace. Peace with God is ultimately what their message was about. God has sent his son, his Messiah, into the world to bring peace with them. If a man characterized by peace was who they met up with, they'd know it. In other words, if God was working in the person's heart to create a heart of peace, then they'd know it. Guys, have y'all ever uh, had the Jehovah Witnesses come to the door? <laughs> you ever gotten in a discussion with them before? Getting a little bit of a discussion and you start talking about the Trinity and you have your Bible and you understand and what happens to them? They get angry. Peace would be the furthest thing from the conversation. When you really start nailing it down, they get really angry. That's the converse. That's the opposite. When you go out into this mission, if you're talking to somebody and they're proud and they don't want to hear anything about being humble and humbling themselves before God, then they're not characterized by peace. In this case... You would see it. You'd know it. That's what he's saying. Go with the message of peace and you'll know who's for you or in for me and who's against me. Notice he then says, go with a humble gratitude. He says, stay in the house that lets you in, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. What in the world is he talking about here? Ultimately, he's saying, God will provide for you through these people. Just trust me. You're going to be taken care of. You're working for me. You're going to get your, you're going to need, get your essentials. God's going to provide for you. But in a sense, don't make your mission about seeing how much you can get by house hopping. Be Satisfied with what I give you in that house. Be grateful 
thankful, humble with what you have. His point here is, and boy, this one doesn't fit in evangelical circles. What, what people think is, let me see how much I can get from the people. Hey, I'm, I'm a laborer. I'm, deserve, I'm deserving of my wage. I think my wage should be six figures. <laughs> so let me get it. And so I'll house hop. I'll go everywhere I can to get more money or on TV and post it on the bottom of the screen. Call in and give me a little bit more. Here he's saying, look, go to the house. Proclaim the word, and whatever they give you, they'll give you the essentials. Be satisfied. By the way, there's a great little application here for us, too. I was looking this week. Did y'all see the article on, on, online of the poor in America? Oh, it was unbelievable. The poor in America. Two cars, two TVs, over 50%, two TVs, DVD players. 36% had a high-valued, high-expensive uh, video game thing, you know, like Wii or PS3. or These are the poor of America. But we in America think what? We don't have enough. We deserve more. Now, I know this goes countercultural, but I love how Piper puts this in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. If you're on the mission field and you're going to serve full-time ministry, it's not about getting rich. It's not about being wealthy. You just need your essentials. And God takes care of you. And folks, I think you ought to start practicing that, all of us, not just the disciples makers, not just the mission field people, not the missionaries only, all of us. We need to be more content, don't we? Humble gratitude for what we have. Anybody sleep outside yesterday? No. We all had a place to sleep, didn't we? Anybody go hungry yesterday? If so, we all should chip in right now and get you some food. I don't think so. We all got plenty, don't we? Look, God's taking care of us. We got plenty. Be thankful. Keep your point message on point. Proclaim Christ. Don't worry about all those things. Proclaim Christ. That's what he's saying. Then he says, accomplish the mission. In verses 8 to 11, he says, accomplish the mission with those who receive you. He said in verse 8, whatever city you enter and they receive you, Eat what is set before you. Again, be content with what you got. Just eat it. And heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Fellowship with those God opens up to you. Eat with them. Common practice of fellowship. Take care of the most basic needs for them. If they're sick or hurting, he gave them authority to literally heal them. And then third, proclaim the good news of the kingdom's arrival. While Jesus was there, his followers were stating the king was there. So that's what he means by the kingdom of God has come near to you. The king is here. We proclaim a little bit different message. The king has come. And he died, and he rose from the dead, and he's victorious. The king has done it. That's what we proclaim. We see here, no matter what, that we're supposed to be about sharing Christ and sharing his kingdom to people and taking care of the most basic needs. By the way, I think this fits in real well with what uh, Sarah Joe and Keena are going to do, doing the little clinic thing and bringing some vitamins and stuff. No, we don't have the gift of healing, because if we did, we'd all walk into the city and we'd go, everybody's sick, come here, boom, you're, you're healed. <laughs> be real quick, wouldn't it? Instead, we're going to bring some vitamins. That's what we're doing right now. We're collecting vitamins and some basic essentials. That's a good thing. So we do this. We help them out a little bit. But what's the main mission? To proclaim the kingdom. That's what we're going to do. Y'all are going to proclaim the king. We need to be praying for him, don't we? We need to be helping them. 
So you say, well, I can't go to the mission field. Well, you can give. You can give. Come on, folks. Give. How many of you go without? Nobody. How many of you? We, I mean, what have I given up? We don't give up a whole bunch here. Give. We can support others. But, he says, accomplish the mission with those who reject you, too. Notice. And reject the message. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into, out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, again, I think it's very crucial. Just like in the previous one, we can't walk into the city and heal them. This is description, not prescription. We have to be careful of just immediately saying, okay, I'm going to knock the dust off next week. You go into the new town, you go up into that village, and the people say, I don't want you. Please don't take your sandals off, ladies, and knock them off and say, okay, that's it. You're under the hand of judgment. That would be direct application when this should probably be looked at a little closely to see if it's direct application or not. I will say this, give grace to the humble, but the law to the proud. That does fit. Here it says, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid to go out in public and proclaim to these cities coming judgment if they reject the king. Here he's being pretty harsh. But again, it was for that time and those people, the Jews were being offered their king. And he's saying literally, listen, This is your chance. Receive the king. And if you don't, judgment's coming. He's given them a great big warning. And what is a warning, by the way? Knocking the dust off. You know what that is? That's mercy. That's mercy. He's saying, God's judgment's coming. Don't line up with your city. Receive the king when he comes. That's merciful. They were emissaries. Remember, Jesus is coming afterwards. It's just like Jonah. What did he say? Judgment's coming soon. It can cause people to repent. God can use that to cause them to get ready for the king as he arrived. So he's showing them mercy, even those who reject them. Proclaim why they face this judgment. And ultimately their judgment will be because they're rejecting the king and his kingdom. Folks, Again, back to our friend Rob Bell. I say that just tongue-in-cheek. You know that. Warning people of hell is the best thing you can do for people. Telling people about hell is a good thing. The illustration has been overused but fits so well. If you see your neighbor burning up in a house, is it kind for you to not tell him that his house is on fire? Is that kind to look at him as he's burning up in the house? Oh, I think I'll let you stay there. Nope, don't want to bother you. Don't want to tell you your house is on fire. That's crazy. The most merciful thing we could do is proclaim people to people, your house is on fire. You're about to die and go to hell. Hell is real. Jesus talks about it. In the coming warning passages, Rob Bell. Yes, I'm picking on him today. The fact is, there's great application for us here. Proclaim Jesus in a humble way and warn of his coming judgment if they reject him. But then notice Jesus steps back and reveals this is where their mission stops. Again, get this. Get this, listen closely. Our job is what? Go, trusting in God, proclaiming the message, fellowshipping with the people. But then what do we do? Stop. It is not our job to convert anybody in the city. It's not our job to judge anybody in the city, John and James, remember? Let's call down fire on their heads. It's not our job to do that. 
It's not our job to convert anybody. It's our job to do what? Proclaim it and humbly depend upon our Lord. That's what we do. And then he says it. Look, he gives what the results are, who the results are for. The results of the mission are ultimately up to who? God. Look, the results of the mission in 12 through 16, he gives it. He says it. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. What's he saying? If they reject me as their king, it's going to be worse for them than Sodom. What happened at Sodom? Anybody, come on. Anybody remember what happened at Sodom? Fire and brimstone. Came down and wiped the city out, right? Remember? And Lot's wife did what? She looked back and became a pillar of salt. Why? God judged the place because of its wickedness. It's debauchery, right? That's what God did. What's he saying here? You reject the king, and it's going to be worse for them than Sodom. That's pretty graphic language, isn't it? Worse for them. Worse for them. What does that imply, by the way, about hell? What does that imply? More tolerable. Some of us get into this idea. Hey, do you know that there's levels of hell? Fire can be hotter for some than others. It's hotter for some. Hell's worse for some. Who's it worse for? It's for the ones that heard the gospel, heard about the king. They were visited by him, and they rejected him. Folks, then Jesus just goes off, man. Man, I just pray, oh, God, please never be this said of our town. You don't want this to be said of you. Woe to you, Tampa, Florida. You don't want that. Woe to you, Corazine. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which was a wicked and rebellious people, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloths and ashes. Why? These cities, then he goes on and says, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. You're going to hell. Wow. This is... Who's talking about hell now? Jesus. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Ultimately, Jesus is saying in this section, right after his commission, he says, leave the results to God. Leave the results to God in verse 12. God will take care of them if they reject you and they reject the message. In effect, Jesus says to the disciples, if the people reject your message of me, they will face a holy and just God. And if the person hears the good news of the king and they reject that peace that comes from God, then they will face a stricter judgment than even Sodom. Then he says, like the judgment coming on those who have already rejected him. See, Jesus has already gone to these cities, folks. He's already gone to Chorazin. He's already gone to Bethsaida. He's already spent a lot of time at Capernaum. He's already proclaimed the truth. He's already said these great things. He's already proclaimed his kingship. He's already done the healing. He's already done all this. The gospel's been proclaimed to them. And they have done what? No more. I don't want to hear it. And he says, judgment's coming. Wicked, rebellious people we are. Repentance is in order. The king has come. He died to pay for sin. Trust in him. 
And the one who listens to me on these things that the Bible is clear about, not me, receives Jesus and his word. Not me. It's not my opinion. It doesn't matter what I think. It's what his word says. That's what he says. The reception of the word reveals their response to God. It's not about whether I make a convert. It's all about what they do with the word of God. Look at third, verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. There's some wonderful truth here in this passage. Revealed, the concerning, revealed concerning mission. The message comes with the authority of the king. The reception of the message is not about the messenger. Whether you accept what I say today that lined up with scripture or not, <laughs> doesn't matter what you think of me. <laughs> you might not like what I said. You might not like the words that came out of my mouth. If it's lined up with what Scripture says, take it up with the author. He said it. That's what Scripture says. The reception of the message is not about the messenger. And finally, the reception of the message reveals a person's true relationship with God. What you do with the word of God determines whether or not you're right with him. It shows whether you're right with him or not. Are you all about this? Is this your life? What he says we will do? You will follow what he says no matter what? Is it about this more than family? Is it about obeying him and bringing pleasure to him more than anything else? then you're right with God. God's declared you right because you don't receive this unless God has worked in your heart. And if you don't receive this and you won't repent, the fires of hell are waiting for you. Today, repent. Turn and trust in a loving and gracious God. He sent his son to die to pay for your sin. Trust him, not yourself. The king is good, and we want to make him smile. All we do is humble ourselves and receive him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ, our King, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our friend. Thank you, Lord, the very hard words. The judgment is coming. Oh, God, help us to trust in you, to proclaim your Son in all circumstances, completely dependent upon you, and leave the results you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.